Out of the darkness of the opening frames comes a supplicant, Bonacera the Undertaker. He pleads for the justice that the American legal system denied him. As the camera draws back, we see the outline of a face, a hand. Don Corleone holds court at the confluence of loyalty and duress, generosity and calculation, power and fragility. It is not money, but friendship that he asks of Bonacera. Within and without the world of the film, can one consider Don Corleone a great man? Or does his moral code, like his favor, always hide a transaction? Today, we're discussing Francis Ford Coppola's 1972 film, The Godfather. This is Aaron Alonick. And this is Wes Alwyn. And you're listening to Subtext. So before we begin, I just wanted to say that if you're listening to this on the feed for The Partially Examined Life, we won't always be here and not all episodes of Subtext will appear here. If you're enjoying the show, you can subscribe to us on the podcast app of your choice, either by going to subtextpodcast.com slash subscribe or by searching for us within the app itself. Wes, where do you fall on the part one versus part two supremacy debate? I'm curious. <laughs> I was worried you were going to ask me about part two. Like, really? I should watch part two as well, um, which I didn't. I mean, I've seen it, of course, several times, but God knows when the last time I saw it was. And I know that there are many people who say that the second one is the best one, but I haven't seen it recently enough to, to evaluate. What do, what do you think? I used to be a part two person. I think I'm I'm now a part one person as I get older, weirdly. I think that uh, part two has that great prequel with Vito's rise and those mm. great scenes of him coming as a kid through Ellis Island, which I love. And um, I love the, the scene at the uh, San Gennaro Festival in the streets of Little Italy when he's mm. on the rooftop looking down. It's so good. But I think the stuff with Michael in Cuba, it just it gets so depressing. But I, I realize that one of the reasons why I like the first film better, which I don't know what this says about me, is there are more deaths in the first film and the deaths <laughs> are way more like interesting and creative. So even though my favorite death occurs in the second film, when Vito's mom dies in the in the the garden of that evil Sicilian, mm. and those two guys come with shotguns and they just like blow the mother she's knocked back you know she's blown away by the blast mm. i love that there's something really poetic about that but uh but the first one has so many iconic deaths deaths mm. and, and murder scenes and and i just i guess there's only one iconic death in it uh everything else is, is just murder in the second one in the first oh you mean one one non-murder yeah one non non-murder death one natural Natural. Yeah. <laughs> natural. There you go. <laughs> That's the word. <laughs> Struggling to, yeah. <laughs> it's very natural. It has t- tomatoes and when an the norm peel. becomes murder and you can't even think of what the other kind of death is. That's <laughs> right. <a problem. laughs> exactly. And I mean, I, I wonder what that says about me or about culture that I'm like, oh, this one is better because it has so many great deaths in it. But uh, I think that's a big part of the appeal of these films or this one anyway. I didn't do a lot of secondary reading for this, although you turned me on to the Godfather notebook, which is absolutely amazing. And shows how much thought Coppola put into all of this. And, um, uh, you know, I poked around for some contemporaneous reviews and there's one really cool one by Pauline Kael. And, oh yeah. It's great. But there's one in the New York times by William V. Shannon. And this was, you know, this was a time when you could still be morally outraged by sex and violence in the films and still be able to be published in the New York times. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. This is the way he describes the violence. With startling close-ups, vivid death agony sequences, and technicolor blood spurting everywhere, 
these new-style movie murders do manage to hold audience attention. By the end of the movie, however, when the new godfather presides over the murders of the heads of the New York underworld's five families, as well as two or three miscellaneous enemies, I lost count, these deaths are becoming mechanical and meaningless. In one of its aspects, the godfather is part of the growing pornography of violence. Having done about all they can do to make sexual intercourse explicit and boring on the widescreen, <laughs> the movie makers are now in the process of acquainting everyone with many varieties of violence. Murder by Submachine Gun is still a hearty favorite. The Godfather teaches some new lessons in murder, such as how to garret your brother-in-law. <laughs> Spoiler alert, by the way. Spoiler alert. <laughs> the brother-in-law gets garreted. Uh, these are in addition to examples of persons being murdered while starting a car, having a massage, paying a causeway toll, <laughs> going through a revolving door, and eating spaghetti. <laughs> I love that. If I remember correctly, Kale in her review doesn't like the uh, toll booth sequence. She thinks it's too much. Yeah. She likes the violence, if I remember it, but she just thinks that one is, she calls it. Oh, she's a slut for violence. She says the effect is too <laughs> garish. Perhaps the director goes off key when Sonny is blasted and blood spattered at a toll booth. The effect is too garish. I remember Tracy Morgan in an interview saying um i asked the critic tracy morgan <laughs> the, yes the great critic tracy morgan had one of the most insightful comments i have ever heard on the godfather films when he mm. said sonny's would still be alive today if he had easy pass <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> yes that's why you never take the cash lane <laughs> Maybe Kale would have liked it better if it was in the middle of the night and you could just sort of see the, the vague suggestion of, of the mist behind him. Mm -hmm. A lot of mistiness, actually, in this. What's funny is that scene, I think it cost $100,000 to produce mm. and several days. There's some good pictures in the Godfather notebook of them setting up that scene. Or, or I love just see, seeing Coppola wandering around <laughs> <laughs> in his creation, looking very frumpy <laughs> and unromantic i remember reading that the studios asked him to insert more violence into the film at some point yeah and and they were upset with the lack of sex or or maybe i'm just thinking about about the incredible amount of sex that's in the book though i've only read sections of it it is truly disgusting <laughs> I haven't read it, but I, yeah, I, or I read pieces, you know, but I, yeah, I heard, I heard that it's, <laughs> it's a sex fest. Um, of course the movie would have been ruined by that. Right. I think directors and writers have learned their lesson. People just don't try to pull that off today for the most part, as far as I can tell. Explicit sex scenes. They just, they just understand it doesn't really work. Yeah. And there are for reasons for that. There are reasons why violence works in movies and sex works only in pornography. That's a discussion for another time. I think I agree with that. You know, the amazing thing about this film, which which is so troubling, I guess, you know, people are sort of troubled by movies as a genre because they think how could um, something like Gone with the Wind be made with so many cooks in the kitchen? It sort of defies the laws of art. And I think mm. in, in the same way, these, these two movies, part one and part two, that we're only covering part one today, they also sort of defy the laws of art in that um, Coppola took this potboiler kind of trashy novel, which, which Puzo himself said was beneath him. You know, it was, uh, he wasn't. He just uh, did it for the money. And yeah. Yeah. And, and made it into, you know, maybe the greatest movie of all time and how, how uncomfortable that tends to make me that, that he was able to distill from it, I guess, this incredible 
film, though, actually reading some of the pages in, in The Godfather Notebook that he's copied and pasted, I mean, some of it is very silly, and a lot of it gets bogged down in these side plots and these, you know, over-sexualized moments. But a lot of it is incredibly vivid, and, the you know, a lot of the scenes are preserved pretty exactly from the book. Yeah, I noticed that. I was really surprised by that, the dialogue and the, yeah, maybe you should just read the very beginning of the book. Connie Corleone was not quite a pretty girl, thin and nervous, and certainly become shrewish later in life. But today, transformed by her white bridal gown and eager virginity, she was so radiant as to be almost beautiful. Beneath the wooden table, her hand rested on the muscular thigh of her groom. Her cupid bow mouth pouted to give him an airy kiss. Fast forwarding a little bit. Clemenza, immensely tall, immensely huge, danced with such skill and abandon, his hearty belly lecherously bumping the breasts of younger, tinier women, that all the guests were applauding him. And then Coppola writes in the margin next to that, keep, which <laughs> he does, of course. So anyway, it gives you, it's, it's pulp, it's pulp fiction. It's, it's reads like a romance novel, but you know, it's clear why Coppola can do so much with it because it, it sets up a wonderful reflection on the immigrant experience. And it seems to think about mafia violence. I'm going to say mafia, even though the word never occurs in the movie, right? Mm-hmm. Or the phrase Casa Nostra. And it was actually cut out. <laughs> I think mm-hmm. they, there was like one instance of each in the movie originally. And it was cut out, but at the request of mob pressure, right? Um, was it, that or the, I think there's an Italian American organization that requested it be taken out. Yeah, but this was not a legitimate Italian American organization. Oh. This was a, a, a cover, <laughs> a cover. It was a, a mafia based okay. organization that was That's calling itself the civil hilarious. rights something or other. Yeah, you know. That is hilarious. Yeah, so it, it thinks about mafia violence in terms of a reaction against the quote unquote violence in, involved in assimilation. So you get this, you know, wonderful beginning to the film. I believe in America, which is taken, you know, a lot of this, this dialogue in the first scene is taken straight out of the novel. And then the description by Bonacera of his predicament, his desire for a kind of justice that he can't get from America. You know, he believed in America. He behaved like a good American. His daughter was raped. Attempted um, rape. Or attempted, okay. She was assaulted because she wouldn't give up her more traditional ways, right? She was raised like an American in the American fashion, as he puts it, but she kept something of her her roots. She didn't give in to the more libertine aspects of American society, and then she was punished for it. She was punished for, in a sense, for not fully assimilating and you can read that as Americanness, including liberal values, and I'll say why in a second. Americanness being forced on her violently. Americanness in the sense of this system of justice that has failed him, the movement away from a more tribal existence, honor codes and vendettas, and, a, and away from tradition, away from a more robust cultural identity, something that's been watered down. All those forms of, I would call them discursive violence, let's say, but violence in in quotes. The idea that the movie begins with is that the violence of organized crime, in a way, is justified, not justified from the standpoint of the filmmaker, but is felt as a justified form of resistance to that. Mm. The part of what is at work here is an attempt to preserve 
tradition. And that's a fascinating idea that actually does bear exploration and the movie does it very well. To take a step back for a second, I think I've you know, hinted on previous episodes, those the listeners might be surprised, given my name, that I actually come from a very Italian family. And um, I, there's a lot of ambivalence in the Italian-American community about this film, not so much the film itself, maybe as the legacy of the film and what followed. I mean, of course, there were mob movies of the past and, you know, movies with negative Italian-American stereotypes that went back to, you know, the silent era but I, I think this this contributed to an explosion of these movies about uh, um, Italians and organized crime that maybe has only started to peter out relatively recently. You know, seeing as every, pretty much every ethnic group, uh, you know, that came through Ellis Island between, you know, a certain set of years was involved in some measure of organized crime. And Italians had, I think, relatively speaking, I think they had lower crime rates than most other ethnic groups, which makes me wonder, you know, and I, I think it, it makes a lot of people wonder, like, why why this obsession with this particular form of the mafia, the Italian mafia? Mm. I think that maybe the general consensus of, of the critics that I've read is just that the non-Italian public is really fascinated by the idea of this culture, uh, because it, it's, in so many ways, it's really antithetical to the quote unquote, you know, traditional American, you know, basically white Protestant culture. So it became sort of fetishized and exoticized. And, you know, you have the 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 foreignness of the way that many of these people, though not all of them, look compared to, you know, whiter cultures, um, the language barrier, the strong family ties, the big loud events, you know, the smells and bells, if you will. And then you can marry that to the subject matter of mafia culture, which can dramatize maybe like nothing else these Italian cultural values of family and loyalty and faith and put all of that into play so it's like a perfect recipe for entertainment and I think that the ambivalence of the Italian American community about about these films is that that is taken then as Italian culture when really I think that what Coppola is trying to show or rather what he does successfully show but which has become so glamorized is actually that mafia culture is a perversion of traditional Italian American culture and that uh, the moral values associated with that culture are kind of turned inside out. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, I was I was sort of examining the opening scene and and Bonacera's coming to Don Corleone and asking for a favor as sort of a, a ceremony of loyalty and generosity. There's something going on here, which is very ritualized, of course, on the occasion of his daughter's wedding. He is granting a favor to anyone who asks him as part of the Sicilian tradition. And um, loyalty and generosity are perhaps the two sort of central virtues of Italian-American culture. You know, if there was a crest for all Italian-Americans, it would probably just say loyalty and generosity. You know, one is loyal and generous to one's friends out of love, and of course, particularly loyal and generous to one's family. And then in, in mafia culture, you know, we have this terminology of the family is muddled, so it can also refer to the crime syndicate. So it's this first indication that we have this sort of like shadow Italian-American culture. But anyway, you have to procure the Don's favor by being loyal to him, by being a friend. And this is what Bonacera fails to do by insulting the godfather when he comes in, because he at first treats this ceremony as a transaction. Mm -hmm. And he's also failed the test of loyalty in the past, we've learned, right? Like, he hasn't extended friendship to Don Corleone, even though his daughter, I believe, is the—Don uh, Corleone's wife is her godmother, right? There's, like, a familial connection yeah. there. Yeah, So he has to be loyal uh, in order to prove the, the sort of his worth to receive his favor. And then 
one then receives the Don's favor as this like outpouring of generosity. You know, it's like it's like grace. Like he's a he's a god who's been pleased by this event of the sacrament of his his daughter's wedding, and he's handing out these these favors like graces. And yet, I think when I looked at it a little bit closer, I realized, okay, well, these are all bastardizations of loyalty and generosity, because of course we see with Bonacera that the the loyalty that you need to approach. Don Corleone can just be a performance. The Don pretty much tells him like what to say in order to get him to grant him this favor. And Bonacera then then does it, performs for him. And I, I suppose maybe in a in a harsher movie or, or in a movie with a less interesting Don, you might expect Corleone to turn around and say, Okay, now that I've taught you manners, you know, get out of my sight. <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. I'm not gonna grant this to you. Or or even murder him. Though that I guess that wouldn't be in keeping with the spirit of the day. Instead, he does grant him the favor, uh, even though the, the loyalty is just performative. And then it seems like a true outpouring of generosity on the Don's part, but it's of course a false generosity because it's tainted. You know, it demands reciprocity. You may be called upon at any moment to return that favor. And then when you're called upon to return the favor, you're supposed to perform loyalty by by actually carrying it out. You're executed if you are disloyal. And of course, you know, that's not loyalty either. It's it's just uh, performed under duress. So all of these things are are sort of veiled in the trappings of of this culture. And they're seen in the world of the film as being good things, I think, partially because of what Roger Ebert really brilliantly points out in in his, I think, 20-year retrospective review of The Godfather, which is just that this is a closed world. We never see the victims of this crime syndicate. So it looks like Don Corleone is actually a, you know, a great guy who's wonderful. Um, really, you know, he's a murderer. You know, I think people so have bought into the glamour of this film and uh, so so idealized it that these elements look like true loyalty, true generosity, true Italian-American culture, when in fact we know that that's not true. So I think we can say a little bit about what what is perverting here, how this is a distortion of Italian-American cultural values, or however you want to put it, more traditional values by getting at this relationship between justice and friendship, which will turn out to be related, by the way, to, to another dichotomy that arises in the film between what's business and what's personal. Right. But in this scene, what Corleone is trying, to, is trying to reinforce is the idea that friendship is prior in a way to justice, that justice must be subsumed under the concept of friendship. So what he criticizes Bonacera for is relying on the American justice system. You know, why didn't you come to me before you went to the police? You know, the police protected you and there were courts of law and you didn't need a friend of me. Now you come to me and say, Don Corleone, give me justice. But you don't ask with respect. You don't offer friendship. This, of course, is an old idea. It comes up, for instance, in Plato's Republic. There's a character called Polemarchus who, you know, when Plato is trying to figure out what justice is, how do you define it? Or Socrates. Polemarchus proposes that it is hurting one's enemies and helping one's friends. And Socrates ends up rejecting that and getting that relationship reversed again, saying that actually justice must be prior to the concept of friendship because you can't really know who your true friends are unless you know about justice first. Like your true friends can only be people who are actually just. And then you can't be a friend unless you are behaving justly. And you can't be someone who behaves justly unless you do that with both your friends 
And your enemies. (laughs) (laughs) Catch 22. So it scrambles that whole concept, which I think is a more, I would call this a set of tribal values. So I associate tribal values with honor codes and vendetta, you know, the rule of vengeance and the idea, you know, what what you see in a society like in America with liberal values, there's an institutionalization of justice that makes it highly impersonal and it makes it have nothing to do with friendship. So justice, you know, in, in our system has nothing to do with the victims, for instance, even though that idea has kind of become more popular recently because tribal values are sort of making a, a comeback in certain ways. It has nothing to do with the victims. So for instance, it's not, you don't punish people to satisfy the victims. You punish people to preserve a certain civil order. You give the perpetrators due process, right? Which means that you could end up with the attempted rapists getting only a three-year suspended sentence, which is what Bonacera is complaining about. So this new way is there's a lot of ways in which it's flawed and unsatisfying. And also one could argue it's hypocritical as, you know, Mike does at one point in the film, it's hypocritical because the whole, the civil order is founded on violence. So this is kind of the paradox. You can call this foundational violence in order to leave the state of nature and establish a society, a civil society. You might think of that, right? As some philosophers have contractually, you just get together and say, "Eh, life sucks in the state of nature. Let's get together and be nice to each other and settle our differences, not by violence, but with laws and contracts and courts and things like that. But in reality, right? Lots of violence. And all you have to do is look at history. Lots of violence goes into the establishment of states into the establishment of that order. What the state essentially does is it monopolizes the violence. It takes the right to violence away from citizens, away from individuals within that civil order and gives it to the institutions of government. You can extend that critique and say, look, in a way, the violence is still there inherent in the system. (laughs) Right. (laughs) To quote a Monty Python character, but also (laughs) to take another very popular idea these days, which is that it's the violence is systemic and it's not obvious. It's not as obvious as a mafia murder. It's not as obvious as criminal activity, but it's the same sort of thing. It's just kind of spread out and institutionalized. So you could see the system itself as injustice and unjust, unjust and leading to unjust outcomes. So for instance, it leaves the immigrant or any, any person at the lower end of power relations, it leaves them where they are, right? They can't necessarily compete. So for instance, business kind of is a good example of this because it's a hybrid of state of nature stuff and civil society, right? It, mm. it it's, it's very competitive. It's dog eat dog. It's a zero sum game, but it operates not according to violence, but according to legalities and contracts and things like that. But that just means that the rules have changed, right? You're still competing. It's still a competition for survival. And you see that in inequalities in societies, right? Some people end up at the very bottom with with very little, and some people have lots and lots of money. So you can come to a society like the United States, and you see this paradox between the liberal values and those ideals, and then you see the dog-eat-dog kind of business existence, and you might get the idea that it's all hypocrisy, and that in a way, there's something more honest about conducting one's business by way of explicit violence instead of the violence that is kind of hidden <laughs> mm-hmm. within its institutionalization within a um, 
within a civil society. So the competition is transferred from the plane of you know explicit, violent, physical struggle. It's the plane of the meritocracy where we have mm. to, instead of arming ourselves and learning how to fight physically, we arm ourselves educationally. You know, just just think about the enormous investment in education that it takes to get someone to the point where they can compete well enough in society to be middle class. So you mm. really have to do a, a lot of work to get someone to that point. And that's still competitive. There are still winners and losers. And who's to say that people ought to be on the losing side because they're less intelligent or less educated? Why isn't that just as unfair as being on the losing side? Because you're weaker. You're physically weaker. You're not as capable of violence. So the insight here is that there's something inherently violent in meritocracy, inherently unfair, because no one deserves to be on the losing end just because they are on the losing end of social power relations in society or you know educational disparities things like that mm -hmm. any more than they deserve to be on the losing end of things because they uh they've lost a battle of physical force as an immigrant and, and there are lots of fears at work right the fear is that you are your identity is going to be transformed you're no longer going to be italian because that's what happens you're you're subject to cultural influence and that cultural influence works on you. But then the other idea is that you're, you're going to be worked over by a set of values in particular, these, you know, the, the liberal values that inevitably takes you away from tradition, but also, you know, tradition in general, not just Italianness, but a more traditional way of life or a thicker, more robust kind of cultural identity that it'll water down. And also that it's hypocritical that there's something dishonest about it so that to become civilized, so to speak, right? To put this in a very pejorative way, if you see a, the, the new country as a civilizing force, if you look down on the immigrant from that perspective and see them as you know lesser than, from the immigrant's perspective, it could be that the so-called civilizing forces are actually regressive and destructive of a more real moral, you know, the kind of moral fabric that's, that you get with a small community, this kind of stuff that you see in the celebrations in the movie and the stuff that goes on in Sicily a little bit, right? The more local communal stuff can be compromised. Yeah. I suppose I, I don't want to go too much into this, but I, I suppose you're also getting at the ambivalence of a lot of Italians uh, towards this film, because I think in a lot of ways, this struggle against American values was was not one that the vast majority of of immigrants took. You know that was not the route that they went. You know the vast majority subjugated themselves exactly to American values, and often at um, you know tremendous personal cost. And there's a lot of arguments about what it takes to to become white or to you know earn the cover of whiteness in this country, whether or not it's something that can be earned. And of course, you know, to a certain extent, it is not. Italians were not always considered white people and had to work very hard to prove themselves often in, in by humiliating themselves and, and subjugating themselves to a culture which they, which was in many ways, uh, you know, beneath their own. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. um, well, the beneath in the sense, right, of, you know, what is the culture in America? It's a it's it's that melting pot problem right it's generic it's there's there's not a right culture in the deeper sense to it there's, yeah. there's many cultures it's pluralistic and that's great you know there's there's opportunities for supposedly for different cultures to thrive but overall there's a tug towards 
the generic and and one might fear that that's you know obliterates any specific culture yeah even in the book i think um one of the pages that i saw from the godfather notebook connie is uh placating her father by having this large italian traditional italian wedding uh, she didn't want it and in my own family you know my grandmother for instance did not want to have many of the trappings traditionally associated with uh, italian american marriage ceremonies because they were afraid of being seen as too Italian, and they they had to basically make everything blander um, in order to show that they were good Americans and that they weren't. Uh, well, I don't want to. I don't want to use this term. There's a hierarchy in Italian American culture where you you don't want to look like a cavon, which is um, you know a low class Italian who doesn't understand what is de- demanded of you, and it doesn't mean that they're necessarily in- involved in any kind of crime or anything. Just someone who doesn't understand maybe what it takes to quote unquote mm. pass in America. Someone who is less educated, who doesn't have the intellectual aspirations of you know many many classes of Italian immigrants. Mm. So I know a lot of people who felt that they had to perform a more American way of life when it came to these these large rites of passage and ceremonies in order to not disgrace the family and to show that they had assimilated in the same way that Italians were instructed not to speak Italian at home, even though they heard it all the time, so that they would learn English and assimilate as quickly as possible. So there's a certain split consciousness in a, a the generation of Italian immigrants who came home and heard Italian or more specifically, usually a regional dialect like like uh, Neapolitan, spoken at home, and were encouraged not to respond in Neapolitan, even though they obviously, because they grew up hearing it, they could understand it and you know could speak it in their heads. And so they had this sort of one consciousness at home and one consciousness at school, um, and where they were you know like embarrassed about bringing an eggplant parm sandwich for lunch and just wanted Wonder Bread and just wanted to fit in, you know. So that particular generation, I think, is is Michael's generation. And that obviously, of course, is the part of the the drama that's being enacted inside him with his attraction to Kay versus his his attraction to, I suppose, Apollonia, you know, represents that part of himself. Mm-hmm. But I'm interested in, in what you say, too, about the submersion of violence in, you know, American culture, where it's it's more explicit in mafia culture. I think it's sort of halfway submerged in mafia culture, right? That's why we get this, you know, the same thing with the split consciousness that I've been talking about in in Michael and in this generation. There's the staging of the opening scene of the split consciousness between, you know, the the dark indoors where the Don is conducting his business and the the bright, beautiful outdoors where the, the women and children play and everyone mm-hmm. is having a good time. And I think that's that's part two of Maybe what I was talking about a little bit with the with the terminology of the family for the crime syndicate, or even of of the word favor, right? Favor is, of course, you know, an act of of goodwill and kindness that that um, I suppose by its nature, you know, it doesn't demand reciprocity because that's not favor, really. That's extortion. So though one may feel moved to return the favor, it also has to be out of one's own goodwill if it's going to be truly. A favor, but here it becomes a cover for the reality of of what's going to be brought about, right? And I, I think I was reading that uh, Coppola was inspired by some mafia bosses, real life mafia bosses, who I guess would say they wouldn't say something like, "Hey, kill this guy for me." They would say, "Hey, you know, do me do me this favor," mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So uh, maybe it's a way of lying to oneself, or or um, 
you know, sanitizing one's language in front of the women, because that's another problem of this film, which is that uh, for being a movie supposedly about Italian-Americans, you know, it's it's really bereft of women, which, again, makes me think that this is about the bastardization of that culture by way of the mafia rather than a true expression of that. Like all the guys sitting around the kitchen table, I'm like, where are the, like the women would be in this room if it, if it wasn't a mafia movie, you know? Mm. And that, that dichotomy, that split of having the women in one area and the men in the other, that's, that's, that doesn't ring very true to me. Well, I want to go back to this idea of the line between what is extortion and what is an act of generosity or a favor um, or an act of friendship and the way that that is blurred. Um, and that's kind of dramatized too, right? With the offer <laughs> that can't be refused. Sure. Because that belongs to a different plane, of course, becomes belongs to more the plane of business where, you know, a regular offer, you're trying to appeal to someone's desires and you you know, the offer that can't be refused normally would be just the one that's too tempting. It's the one that is too beneficial. But in this case, it's... <laughs> It's a matter of extortion or force or threat. So fear is the operative thing and, and not desire. So to what extent is the, you know, the idea of the favor at the beginning compromised by that? Mm. Favors, it, it's something very primitive. It's, it's a staple of political power. So for instance, the way a, an alpha male chimpanzee maintains power is through the administration of favors, and some of that is just, uh, some of that's grooming, some of that's giving food. But, you know, it's not a matter of physical strength. And political power, right, isn't just, it's a, more, it's a matter of status, primarily, not of actual physical strength. Because any, you know, a bunch of male chimpanzees in a troop can band together and do. And this happens to kill the leader, no matter how strong he is. And when that does happen, it's often because of social failures, on the part of the alpha male, the lack of favors. So why is that so important? What the favor does, even though, even though it's transactional in this, this case, is it illustrates a cast of mind in which the benefits of power will be shared. So the alpha male doesn't seize power simply for the sake of himself. He serves the public good. <laughs> he serves the chimpanzee civil order, so to speak. He's serving a, a kind of higher order and function. So what favors illustrate is that kind of orientation towards the good of the uh, whole social unit as opposed to, the, to one's own good. So we get at your point about it not being a real act of generosity because it's transactional. You know, one might say that even the ideal act of generosity is transactional in the sense that it's for the sake of bonding, let's say, even if it's for the sake of establishing mutual intimacy and trust, there's still something that it, that it serves. It's still for the purpose of something. Mm. You kind of understand with Vito Corleone's taking offense in the beginning and his desire to prioritize the friendship, quote unquote, over justice. Bonacera has come to him and treat, wants to treat him like a judge, wants to treat him as if he is part of this American or more liberal system which is very impersonal and corleone takes that as a sign of disrespect which at the level of friendship it is it's it's a for corleone to be a judge he can't be an interested party mm -hmm. he has to be a disinterested party and you lose something when you do that when you move to that position you do lose something of a more communal set of values and bonds that are more robust one of the great things about the way this is acted 
I was looking for the script just to have it on hand for the podcast. And I found the script that seems to be not the shooting script of the screenplay. So you see lots of alterations and the way things are written in the screenplay at the very end of that scene, Bonacera gets the point and says, be my friend. And Vito Corleone says, good. And then he gives that speech about someday and that day may never come. I'll call upon you to do a service for me. But until that day, accept this justice as a gift on my daughter's wedding day. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is probably Brando's improvisation because he refused to learn his lines and, and oh, <laughs> was apparently improvising all over the place. In the original screenplay, he puts the justice part before the favor. So he says, from me, you'll get justice. And then Bonasera says, Godfather. And then he says, someday, and that day may never come, I would like to call upon you to do me a service in return. So... That idea that from me you'll get justice, that sounds a little bit too much like it prioritizes justice over friendship, which is point of this is that friendship comes first. And to ask for the service in return first, in a way, gets it right. And then to say, until that day, accept this justice, this specific act, not justice in general. I'm not this impersonal judge, this impersonal agent of justice. I give justice out as gifts. I wrap them in a bow and I give them justice is a part and parcel of friendship not its own abstract thing that transcends friendship so i think that is actually very if 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 it, if it's true that brando did that he actually instinctively i think understood the spirit of the whole scene and mm. instead of talking about justice you know you put this in front of it and you make it an act of gift giving the particular justice that's to be done. So it should have gotten a screenwriting credit. <laughs> yeah, definitely. From the Godfather notebook, I highlighted this part of Coppola's notes where he writes, uh, "Scene with Bonacera is good and very important. It further defines the Don's power and puts forth the essence of what it is the Don refers to as friendship, i.e., a pledge of loyalty. It is the gathering and manipulations of these pledges which give the Don his extraordinary power in the first place." It is very important that after Bonacera gives his pledge that we understand he feels he is now under a grave and frightening obligation to the Godfather. Bonacera must be a super, super actor, which I think he is a super actor, but I, I suppose that leads me to think about what the obligation he is under uh, to the Don what will ultimately result in, which is um, actually incredibly sad, which is he's going to be asked to to do his job mm-hmm. as the undertaker and clean up Sonny's bullet-riddled corpse so that his mom can look at him, which seems to me to be, you know, obviously in, in talking about these these favors, and I talked about them rather generally uh, in my long spiel at the beginning, you know, all of these favors are criminal activity, murders being committed, etc. But I think it's really interesting that ultimately what Bonacera is going to be asked is, is merely to do his job and to clean up Sonny's bullet-ridden corpse uh, to make him presentable to his mother. Yeah, I think that's that's really important. By the way, I think it's funny that when the Godfather assigns the task of finding someone to beat up the boys who have assaulted Bonacera's daughter, he says, you know, find some people we're, that are not going to get carried away. We're not murderers. Yeah. <laughs> Which is hilarious. Yeah. So he doesn't view what he does as murder. You, you know, in, the, in cases where they're killing people, Vito's perspective is that that sort of thing is not murder. And one can think of different rationalizations. One can think of it, it delivers justice by way of vendetta, or one can think it's just business. It's not personal, so it's not murder. Mm-hmm. So you can kind of wriggle out of the whole concept of murder in either direction, and those things, of course, are not consistent. 
But the point you bring up about Bonacera being asked to do his job makes me think of the fact that there are favors and then there are favors. So there's asking to people to do things that are illegal, but not just that, but inconsistent with one's identity, which again is evocative of the power of cultural influence on the immigrant and the ways in which identity might be compromised. But if you ask Bonacera to do something that's not him, not part of what he does, not his job, not his function as a person. Um, you know, even if it's, you know, all right, go get me a sandwich now, (laughs) which is demeaning, right? It could be demeaning. It could be criminal. It could be inconsistent with his character. And so even though it's transactional, as you point out, you're kind of asking him to do what he does and to be what he, what he is. So that's a different, more positive conception here of favor. This gets to what I what I was talking about with a friend the other day when I was talking about how the Don rebukes Bonacera, never inviting him over for a cup of coffee, and my friend said, you know, I I certainly want to ha- wouldn't want to have uh, Don Corleone over for a cup of coffee, and I I just thought really you know like he seems like such a great guy to have over for a, <laughs> for a yeah, cup of coffee. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, is you know he's probably a guy you don't want to tangle with, but um, that's what makes him such an appealing character, especially in comparison with his sons who are, you know, as, as Coppola, I think has on the the very first page, if not the cover of the Godfather notebook, he talks about how each of his three sons is a, is a distillation of certain parts of the Don's character. And, Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. you know, none of them are as attractive individually, though, though Sonny has, uh, certain charms and the the scene where he beats up Carlo in the street is like one of the greatest. I just love that so much, (laughs) but, um, you know, none of them is um, this strange mixture of parts that, that the Don is in that he can be so incredibly warm and cuddly and, and truly seem like like a real administer of, of justice and someone qualified to make those decisions. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a very good point, because I think the question of how he is an administrator of justice, actually, it's, it's not just there in that first scene with Bonacera, but it becomes the mechanism that pushes the whole film forward because you get a request from him from Salazzo to use his political relationships, which are, you know, you pointed out a couple of says are the, are the source of his power. And that's really important to use those relationships to get them into the drug business basically. And later on the complaint when, when, Vito calls the meetings of the five families. The complaint to him is that she didn't act like a friend. Friends share. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's very basic. Friends share things. You didn't share your political context. We all have to draw from, you know, we all have to be allowed to draw from the well. Right. For a price, because we're not communists, <laughs> which is great. Um, we're not communists after all, <laughs> as if being a communist is so much lower than uh, being, being a criminal. So what he'll say to Salazzo is that drugs are a dirty business. And in that scene where he's rejecting Salazzo and then later on with the five families, he does say he does have in mind the well-being of the family and, you know, the organization because he thinks it'll destroy drugs will destroy that. But really what's part of what's going on, right, is that he has the impulse to move in the direction of legitimacy. And part of that you, you see in his relationship with Michael. And one of the things that happens at the very beginning of the film is that he wants to wait for Michael to take that wedding picture. Mm -hmm. He has this special relationship to Michael and, and what Michael represents is the 
movement beyond foundational violence to the actual civil order that foundational violence is supposed to establish. So it's as if the whole, you know, state of nature to civil order thing is being recapitulated. And that's his hope. That's his hope is that, you know, you send Michael off to college, you insulate him from what's going on in the family, and then hopefully you can be legit within a few years. And that's what Mike will say to Kay as well. You know, my dad understands that the old ways are no longer going to work and this is all going to be legit soon. What this suggests is that Vito is, has been a little bit too influenced by Americanness because he, he is becoming that impersonal agent of justice and that he rejects with Bonacera, you know, he rejects that role at the beginning of that movie. But to say drugs are a dirty business is to start to inhabit that role and to want to use Michael as a way to, you know, transcend the current predicament of being a family that preserves Mm -hmm. its status as a family, preserves its traditions and cultures by a way of violence to move to the point where you can do that legitimately. That's the aspiration. And that sets things off, right? That aspiration creates the problem that leads to a ton of violence. And then Michael will end up restoring things by getting back to the more personal element. And it's brilliant the way it's done in the movie, right? Mike, Mike's transition in the movie is so subtle. It's like you barely notice it happening, how he goes mm-hmm. from being this green college kid that everyone laughs at, oh, you don't know what you're doing, to being the, the patriarch. But the way he fixes things is to reestablish a personal element. So you get the whole scene where Mike says to Sonny that this is business, not personal. He wants him to negotiate after the attempted assassination of Vito. And then Sonny will end up saying the same thing to Mike. You know, you're taking this too personally. This is about business. Immediately transfers the insult. And then Mike will suggest that they kill, you know, that he be the one to kill McCluskey and Salazzo. And then at the very end of that says it's, you know, this is business. It's not, it's not personal at all, but it is personal. And the whole point of what Mike's function in the film is that he doesn't, instead of restoring the civil order, he goes backwards and he establishes what is personal because of the way in which his father was slipping was he was slipping in that more generic sense of justice in which you could not do a favor to your friends because something is quote unquote, a dirty business. What you see in Mike is this ferocity, all these looks and stares and, and, but he's not like Sonny, right? He's not rash. So he, mm. he somehow <laughs> reincorporates violence, but he fuses it with his intelligence. So the lesson is don't send your son to college and then to world war two and expect them to come back and not run your crime family. (laughs) (laughs) I like what you say too, about what draws him into the business is this sort of double pronged motive, if you will, this idea that um, it's a failure of the American legal system that justifies this murder because Captain McCluskey is, after all, a corrupt cop and they're going to go after him in the papers for being so, Um, but also because he has this now personal vendetta against McCluskey for breaking his jaw and for being, you know, a a total jerk. So there's there's that kind of anger underneath that we see motivating Mike a lot, which is truly scary. I think it's a lot scarier than Vito's underlying threat of violence at all times. We know that Vito is capable of being ruthless. It's part of the function of the whole horsehead scene. <laughs> you know, we're not murderers. That would never work on me. No? Never work on Why? me. Why? No. Very light sleeper. <laughs> 
<laughs> they used a real horse head uh, I know. for the filming. I would wake up and I would start screaming. I would look down and start screaming, but it'd be because I'm looking at like, you know, the guys carrying it over the threshold <laughs> of the yeah. door. I would wake up instantly standing I mean, I, there holding it like a lamp. <laughs> I actually did think of this as a plot hole in the movie. I thought, you know, they must have drugged the guy because he's covered in blood. Yeah. What a great scene. Iconic nonetheless. He sleeps the sleep of the just, right? Or in his mind, <laughs> right. <he> probably. <laughs> right. He's out like a light. Very good. That's another problem with justice. Um, in the abstract sense but yeah so we know Vito can in one moment say we're not murderers just rough up those boys and the next he can be killing poor innocent horses (laughs) just to make a point just to get his friend a movie gig but yes there is something different as you point out about Mike's ruthlessness and I tried to I thought a lot about that I don't know that I got to the bottom of it because something happens with you know something backfires in sending Mike to college as you know which is not the first time that happens but (laughs) (laughs) you know he's supposed to become the kinder gentler (laughs) member of the family but instead you get a kind of monstrous fusion of in the intelligence and the the ability to navigate the other waspy world with Kay and all the other stuff and and between that and then the the violence of his family which is ordinary to him and that's that that is i think is what Vito misses is that you know it's kind of don't do as i do do as i say go be a different type of person well naturally michael is going to see that sort of violence as ordinary and be capable of it it's just now that he's going to be able to bring his impulse his very very high level of impulse control and his intelligence back to that so he's not a sunny he's not rash right he doesn't rush out rush out to kill mccluskey and salazzo there's a whole plan you might argue it's impractical he has to go to sicily for a long time and then there's a lot of murder that results from it but he's playing a long game and, he, and it works and he understands that he seems to know that there's a, there's an end game in which he can establish total authority and eliminate the heads of the other crime families and and he's capable of waging all-out war and he's smart enough to know how to do it and smart enough to avoid his own assassination although his father warns him about that so what i'm trying to say here is yeah you get a fusion of the what i think of as the tribal values of vendetta and all that and then the more the more rational concern for the well-being of the family and the organization like yeah so he asked ask two questions how are we gonna get through this how are you gonna actually preserve our business and our our family and then how am i going to get revenge and he makes those things work together he, he can he can put them together in an uh, effective way and that's part of what makes him such a scary person he and he can do that of course without a conscience without in this very very cold way that's the way it comes across you know you bring up a really a lot of really interesting points there but i i think that not not college but um you know family itself the family unit itself is the civilizing force, at least in Italian culture. Sonny, of course, fails to be properly civilized by family in certain ways, uh, though he understands maybe more intuitively about family than Michael ever will. I think Michael's separateness, his being apart from the family, though the family is this organ of murder and cruelty and all this other stuff. He doesn't get the warmth of that, right? You're, you're divorced from the hotness, <laughs> you know, the, mm, the, the, the mm. heat sources of passion, which is also where care and love and, uh, and all of these important Italian values spring from. Like any positive element of any culture, I think, is a double-edged sword. So by being away from that, ultimately, 
he restores the order in, in the middle of the film with the, the murder of Salazzo and McCluskey. But this is why ultimately we, we get the Michael at, at the end of the film and in part two, who will kill the family to preserve the business. Hmm. He will do what Vito would never do because the whole point of it is to preserve the family. It's to preserve that, that passionate core of love that is trained and developed within the family unit itself. And in, in part two also, we see the origins of Vito's involvement in crime are kind of holy in mm -hmm. a way, right? Mm -hmm. he, is, he is trying to preserve the family. He is trying to help the extortionese, the people at the mercy of the black hand, and ultimately in, in so doing becomes the extortioner himself. But, but he is offering a mantle of protection because of this love, this passion within him that he has, which Sonny gets all of with, with no control, right? Mm -hmm. So Michael's baptism, if you will, into crime doesn't occur the way Vito's does, where we have this near necessity, this uh, concern for family, um, all of these real positive things that actually encourage him to, to go into crime, protecting the, the defenseless. Mm. With Michael, we have the, his baptism is basically, yes, it's restoring the order. Yes, it's a sort of a um, kind of a retribution for, for Vito, though even Vito himself is not angered by the fact there was an assassination attempt against him because even he will say that it was purely business. But I, I wonder if it's actually a little bit of a personal thing with Michael, just with McCluskey. That's why he volunteers to do it because he wants to be the one. And that selfishness and that dead end of, you know, the pure murder within him that is not connected to a good reason, if you will, is I think part of his problem. Yeah. My thesis was that he, it is personal and like the whole you know, that's the arc of the movie is that Vito right. slips away from the personal and messes up on the friendship plane and tries to move too, too much in the direction of justice. And then Mike comes back and says so he makes it personal again. But you're right. He's not doing it in the way Sonny would do it, not rushing out to get himself killed. Right. You're drawing attention to an important point, which is that, and like I said, I wrestled with this. The, the other side of this is that um, Michael is very cold and, um, you know, he's gotten too much of that waspy coldness, hang out with Kay too much and been to college. <laughs> so he's picked that up and brought it back. And so his ruthlessness has a particular icy cast to it. And um, you can see the rage in his face and you can see that it's personal, but you see, you also see that he has it under control and he can make a big plan of this. So it's a more intelligent form of vendetta. He's going to get back to the priority of the personal and of the friendship relation in a way, but over justice in the abstract sense. But he is going to make those ties serve a, a larger rational plan for the establishment of, of power. And maybe it's just for power's sake. Then you, then you have to wonder what he's after if this has just slipped into power for power's sake. And it's, so it's not about the good of the family necessarily, although he did warn Fredo. <laughs> <laughs> he did warn him poor Fredo it's not a, about the good of the family it's, it's not about himself exactly but you know that's the question that I was wrestling with towards the end of the Godfather notebook and I suppose towards the end of the novel because it's one of the pasted on pages uh, Coppola works from I guess when Kay is is pregnant with their second child Michael says something to her like you know you're more an Italian now than a Yankee because you're, you're two kids in two years now you know you're just um, mm. having a lot of 
kids. I don't know. <laughs> and she said, oh, well, you're more Yankee than Italian. You know, you come mm. home and instead of going to see your family, you immediately go to work on the business. Mm. He's introduced the Protestant work ethic into the crime family. <laughs> right. Right. It's a lethal combination. And of course, you know, Vito's um, one of his many maxims is that, you know, man who doesn't spend time with his family is not a real man. Yes, yes. It's interesting, like you say, that that Michael's, <laughs> it seems like with murder and, uh, you know, the, the whorehouses that they run and the, the gambling and then eventually going into the, the drug world and all this stuff, it seems that the chief crime is becoming too much of a Yankee. That's really <laughs> right. the, the exactly. big problem here, which, you know, that makes a lot of sense to me. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, should we talk a little bit about the interesting moral quandary presented to Vito of the choice to go into the drug business, which he turns down, which will be actually, I think, a failure of foresight? Yeah. There's a lot of money in that white powder. You know, it puts him in a position of being in a conflict between doing a favor for a friend and serving some more general sense of justice. But as I said before, he casts it in terms of the preservation of the organization of the family. Drugs would be bad for it. The argument that someone else makes at the five families meeting is that drugs are here anyway. It's impossible. They're too lucrative to prevent people from actually engaging in it. And so we got to manage it. You know, we got to keep it away from schools and kids. That's what I take to be Vito's error is um, worrying too much about justice, about whether drugs are a dirty business and not about friendship. Yeah. So I was just interested in the idea that the regulation of the drug business seems to once again tie together these these two things that are opposed to each other, right? So you have this thing that is outside uh, the law, obviously, that they want to impose a kind of a moral order upon by by choosing to regulate it according to what they think are are you know good good moral values, which obviously those themselves are suspect. They want to keep it away from schools, and they want to um, only put it in the hands of what they rather disgustingly see as, you know, undesirable populations. Mm. And I, I guess I just sort of wondered, is it really a failure of judgment on Vito's part? Is he right not to want to get his hands dirty in this particular kind of business? He obviously thinks wrongly, as we later see, that his political connections will back out if he goes into the drug business because that's a bridge too far. He seriously underestimates mm. the disgusting <laughs> nature of of politics and politicians because in fact they're they're all too happy to jump into bed with the drug business if it's going to give them political favors so maybe he's a little bit naive about that what occurs to me as you say that that you know when you ask the question of whether he was making a prudent or practical decision in rejecting salazzo Instead of rejecting Salazzo, he could have just called this meeting that ends up uh, happening after so much violence, right? The meeting of the five families. He, he could have recognized that this would be a, as one of the members of the five families says, refusal is not the act of a friend. He, he should have known that this would be a big, big problem. Mm. In part because it's kind of, you know, rejection is humiliating. And this is a very status-oriented, honor-oriented thing that they have going. <laughs> their mm -hmm. thing. So, yeah, if I were Vito, <laughs> I would have called the meeting. At the very beginning, I would have said, okay, Salazzo, let me, why don't we think more about this? Let's talk about it with all the families. This is the drug trade. This is bigger than just us. Right. That would have been the right thing to do pragmatically. Of course, like from, a, from an ethical standpoint, from the standpoint of 
justice in the larger sense, he's doing the right thing by refusing to get into the drug trade. It's weird because he's already involved in a lot of other horrible stuff. But yeah, as an as ethically, it's the right decision. Pragmatically, I think it's the wrong decision, but obviously. But then, you know, if you look at this deeper, more tribal set of values centered on friendship, then you can see how the pragmatic error is rooted in what is arguably a moral failure because there is something to the ethical code that centers things on friendship. Like, I mean, ultimately I'm a big proponent of liberal values and avoiding violence. (laughs) This sort of violence is exactly why we have them, but we should recognize that we lose something. We should recognize that they are in tension with something deeper and more connected and more substantial. And so what's really interesting about Vito is he, he, the thing he's accusing Bonacera of in the beginning is the thing that he's guilty of, right? Bonacera <laughs> is too interested in the more abstract form of justice and it offends him, you know, well, you'd be my friend. And then he doesn't do exactly that. He fails to be a friend. He gets more interested in the abstract version of justice. That's so interesting. I guess it never occurred to me that he could have just held the meeting earlier. So that's a good, uh, <laughs> I'm only so, looking uh, at the possibilities <laughs> presented to me. I'm not thinking about some third possibility. Well, the reason I, I thought of that is because I kind of run my own crime family. It's a, it's a transitional <laughs> home <laughs> and I have to have lots of meetings, lots of mediations, resolve lots of conflicts. So I've... <laughs> had some experience doing this and no one gets killed. Sure. Yeah. I suppose what I'm interested in also is the idea that Tom introduces, which is the idea that it is ethical to get involved in the drug business and to regulate it properly. Right. Yeah. I forgot that he introduced that. Right. Yeah. And, and, and so, which is actually the, the correct ethical judgment, the Don's desire to completely wash his hands of the whole business, which I think also comes with a, maybe he's being blind there because of his willingness to view other people in a surprisingly positive light. Because I think the assumption is that um, maybe the other families won't get involved because they are also going to pass on this because it seems to him to be so obviously beyond the pale, that politicians aren't going to want any part of it. Maybe the Tatalias, you know, Barzini, whoever else, is not going to want any part of it. And the whole thing is just going to pass. And he says to Salazzo, you know, do your thing. Our con- our interests are not in conflict, so right. it's all good. You know, I'm not right. opposed to you doing it. So he tries to wash his hands of it in that sense. But of course, he's really blocking it by refusing to share his political context. He's effectively blocking it. Right. And Tom tells him, you know, you're, you're being short-sighted, that we actually have to regulate this now. There's a double-pronged incentive here. One is he's appealing to him on, in a moral way and saying that if we regulate this, we can do it right. We can keep mm. it out of the schools. We could keep it only in the, in the hands of the people that we want it to stay in. And that that would be an interesting, I think, moral argument there. But also, of course, that this is going to be a long-term investment, that th- this has monetary implications for us. We're going to get a lot of money and we have to innovate. We have to, you know, our business has to expand and uh, we have to realize that we're going to have to branch out. Well, yeah, because other people, the other families will do it and they'll get all that money and that means that they'll have all the power. And so their survival depends on competing, right? Right. So they are, it's not an option simply to not compete. And this is where Vito is caught up in his fantasy of legitimization. That's the other part of this, the interest in abstract justice, the legitimization, which is what Michael 
represents michael represents the hope of legitimization and the movement away from all this getting out and that's the tug that <laughs> Vito lets himself get moved by that a little too much and that's what sets things off so it, it's really interesting that in a way his hopes for michael which are connected to legitimization are the thing that starts off this crisis this wave of violence it's the it's the fantasy of escape the fantasy of getting away from it all i think it also originates in in vito's aging you know he doesn't have the stomach for battle anymore or for engaging in this kind of long-term thinking and we see this happen too you know i mean he is he's debilitated of course by getting shot countless times and yet still surviving (laughs) i read somewhere that i guess only five bullets actually land but that that's a lot of bullets for 1946 and then in the later scenes, he, he really looks like an Italian grandpa. You know, I mean, he's, mm-hmm. he's no longer wearing his suits. He's no longer finely tailored. You know, he's wearing plaid shirt and pants, you know, looking like any Italian guy just hanging out at the house and really takes a back seat. He does, of course, give Michael that really important insight about who is going to betray him. Mm-hmm. So he still has, you know, it's it's not like he he becomes some incoherent babbling old man or something. But there's certainly, you know, the retiree mindset that he's he's already kind of gone into by not wanting to get involved in the drug trade and to keep fighting. So we see the power vacuum already happening that Vito is not up for it anymore and somebody has to step in. And of course at first it's Sunny and we see that that's a really bad thing. No one even considers Fredo, which you know, he's, he's, he's offended by, he's at least smart enough to yeah. be offended by the fact that nobody takes him seriously, <laughs> but otherwise he's not, he's not smart enough to figure anything else out. And so we see the necessity that this was always going to be Michael, even from the, the time that Sonny yeah. is, was a kid. Um, he displayed these, these really violent, crazy <laughs> tendencies. This reminds me of one of the drawbacks of the whole personal approach to power, which is that everything depends on Vito's relationships, right? Mm-hmm. So his political connections are not, they're not something that's institutionalized. They're not something that will survive when he dies. And so if he, you know, killing him is a transformative act at a institutional level. If you kill Vito, you politically castrate the Corleone family as a whole, because all the political connections, all the, that Vito has, all the judges and the cops and the politicians that he has in his pocket He's won those by way of favors and by way of quote unquote friendship. And they're all just personal connections and the friendships are not transitive. They're not transferable to mm-hmm. anyone else in the family. Those relationships can't be inherited. That's interesting because when they say it's not personal, it's just business. You know, you're right. The whole basis of his business is, you know, his yeah. connections have been procured on personal charm and his basically being, I don't know if it's safe to say this, but being a good man yeah, and winning people over. Exactly. And then this is the double danger then of, of business and family colliding because when you're running your business like a monarchy, you know, that means that um, you have, you have limited options for the takeover of the company also. Right. And that the business is going to rise or fall based on, you know, the personal qualities of the man at the helm. And you can't, uh, choose someone 
based on worth, who can who can work his way up and come into the business. I mean, I, I think Michael is chosen on worth, of course. I mean, he is a worthy successor in certain ways. In other ways, he's really not in terms of the way that this business is running. If he was just a CEO of GE or something, then he would he would be great. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. You know? Oh, yeah. Mike would be good at whatever field he chose to pursue. <laughs> yeah. Follow your dreams, Mike. You could be anything you want to be in America. Yeah, he went into his father's business. That's understandable. <laughs> but yeah, I think um, when Vito passes, a lot of the power is going to pass with him. What's interesting about, about it being an, an attempted assassination, assassination that doesn't work, but puts him out of commission for a while, is if he had just been assassinated as opposed to debilitated, you wouldn't get as much of the stuff with all the sons trying to run things and figure things out, right? So he's gone, but he's not gone. It's like a bunch of kids having to try to figure it out for themselves, but there's mm -hmm. always the prospect of their father's return. Right. We get a situation in which succession can work itself out. You know, you've got Sonny's rashness and Fredo's cowardice and Tom's cautiousness and then Michael's seeming greenness. And then the question is who emerges in this particular situation, not in the situation which in, in which the father is gone, but in which the a situation in which the father is like a ghost in which he kind of hovers over the, the scene. He's not present to create order. There's a power vacuum, but there's a, you know, you get a kind of limbo where they can be working through this and where someone like Michael can emerge as the winner, as the leader. He's the Mufasa, if you will. And, <laughs> and Clemenza, are, you know, is, is Timon and Pumbaa teaching him how to make sauce, how to kill a guy, how to drop a gun properly, which he does not do. He lifts his arm and then yes, drops the gun. Yes. I'm like. I love that. He does not follow the instructions at all. Well, I also love in that scene. He's not relaxed. You know, he's how, yeah, how he well comes. eating. He's being really, really mean and, and angry. He's being so weird. And then he comes out and I love the moment of like, is he actually going to do it? Because he's waiting a really long time because he doesn't come out shooting from the bathroom. He does it actually in a more clever way because he um, sits down. Everything is normal. It's all fine. And then bam, you know, like, <laughs> but yeah. that hesitation really every time I'm just like, is he going to actually go through with this or, and, you know? Yeah. It's an important part of his transformation, right? So he's, he's not just stepping into a role. He's creating the formative influences that will, will change him. It's one thing to have the capacity for ruthlessness, but it's another to cement it by doing something that ruthless and then going into exile and, and going through all that. So he makes a decision and he, and he creates a different Michael at that point and then returns as someone who can take over the role of Godfather, which makes me think that we should say a little bit about the meaning of Godfather, what it means to call someone a Godfather, which is, you know, it's made especially important by the fact that Michael himself is becomes a godfather at the end of the movie and and it's right you know the the scene of him becoming a godfather is interspersed with or it's it's cut with the scenes of all the assassinations that he's ordered that are going to cement his power so amazing yeah so I thought a little bit about this you know the what I knew about being a godfather is just that like I give him the godfather of one of my nieces which is just that if the parents die I have to <laughs> have to take her in right take care of her at a religious level it means, and you, you can say more about this, um, I might mess this up, but you know, beyond being the witness to the baptism, 
you play some role in the spiritual formation of that person. You know, I mentioned Michael being a kind of formative influence to himself and making the decision to engage in that assassination. So I came to think of the significance of being a godfather as, as having something to do with the significance of being a formative influence and a preserver of formative influences, a preserver of value, preserver of tradition. And in this case, one who does that by way of violence, right? So I, I think these two things are connected, right? The being a godfather and then the what you might call the perversion of that. The only way to do that is by engaging in violence. Of course, the, there are requirements in the Catholic Church for being chosen as a godparent. You have to be, I think, over 16. You have to have received certain sacraments. You have to have, of course, major first communion, and which is necessitated by also another sacrament of confession. Um, you have to have been confirmed, and you have to be a Catholic in, in good standing. So basically someone who is living according to the precepts of the church and living in harmony with the faith. So mm. there's, of course, there's a, a, a big irony there. And at the baptism, you know, you're responsible for initiating the infant into the rites of the church. So when the child is asked if he accepts, in this case, he, though it's, I believe that's little baby Sophia Coppola, mm -hmm. though the child, of course, can't answer for himself, the child is ceremonially asked to accept the teachings of the church and to make a profession of faith. And the godfather and godmother make that profession on the child's behalf, which is why he says, I, when he is responding you know, do you, do you reject Satan and all of his works? He is, he's responding as if he is the child because he has to make this profession on behalf of the child. Mm, interesting. Yeah. The drama and the irony of that moment, I think, reflects what you're talking about with the many meanings of, of the term godfather and the initiation into the baptism by water in half mm. of that scene and the baptism by blood in the other half mm. um, where he is initiated into the the role of Godfather by committing all of these murders, which, which again, I think is really also beautifully played out in the tension in part two between the prequel storyline and the sequel storyline, mm. where we see how, how Vito was initiated and how different that is when we look back at how Michael was initiated in, in part one. Yeah, those two baptisms, which is not the way I thought of that before you said that. That's very powerful. And... Um, that brings us almost to the end. Uh, we, I guess we have one more thing we could touch on, which is what finally consecrates him as Godfather, which is the garroting of his brother-in-law <laughs> and yes. the lying who deserved it and the way in which he lies to Kay about this at the end. I think of all the, the characters in the film, I like Kay the least. And <laughs> I think that uh, for someone who I think is presented in the novel as being, a, she's supposed to be a very intelligent character, there's a lot of willful ignorance on her part, which I guess makes her well-suited to this mafia culture and the culture of willful ignorance. I thought the same thing, by the way. I, she's supposed to be sharply intelligent. And I think Diane, not that Diane Keaton isn't intelligent, but that flaky quality that she has is wrong for this role. I just, th I think she's miscast in the role. And I do too. There would be a lot more dramatic tension in his relationship with Kay if she were a more incisive kind of person and less passive. I totally agree. I, I've long thought that she was, and I hate to say that because I love Diane Keaton, of course, yeah. but I, I do feel that she is the big, big weak link in, in this trilogy. Mm -hmm. Later on, 
I, I don't really, you know, part three, I, I have a lot of problems with. And so that kind of changes. But yeah, I mean, you know, at the wedding, when when she's Michael's date to the wedding, and he tells her the story of his dad and Luca Brazzi, it like doesn't even register for her, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I can, she's been told, you know, she's been warned what, what this is all about. And yet somehow she still doesn't seem to understand what the family business is until yeah. really late. Of course, at that point, she should have just finished out the wedding. Then you go home and you never see the guy again, okay? <laughs> you move as far away as you can. You change your name and that's the end of it. <laughs> you tell your future husband how you once dated a mob guy and blah, blah, Right, blah. right. You know, we didn't really talk about the the long sequence in the middle either with, with Apollonia, but that coming back into her life too after that mm-hmm. whole, I understand why he marries Apollonia and, and why he basically thinks that everything with, with Kay is over. I don't, I don't fault him for that at all. But the coming back into her life, like this shadow and taking her out of it and her just being like, okay, you know, I mean, at first yeah. she's a, a little bit resistant, but um, yeah, we're together again, get in the car. All right. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, because Pacino is just such a, you know, uh, no, I don't want to say that. He's, I think he's really attractive in this film, but she's acting like, who, you know, the one that got away, he's, he's, he's he wants me back. Um, <laughs> so it seems, and this gets to something I touched on at the beginning about, again, the differences between mafia culture and Italian culture. Italian culture, you have, you know, a matriarchy, you have super smart women who don't let you get away with anything. And what this mafia culture requires are women who are willing to be the pawns in some larger scheme, basically. You know, they're, I think that they are willfully ignorant of what's going on with their husbands. Maybe they're comfortable being left out of this equation. There's a suggestion, if I remember correctly, years back, uh, I read a, a, a Molly Haskell essay on The Godfather, which I thought was really good, which contained within it the suggestion that these women are basically like turned on by the fact that the husbands do this and uh, they they are perfectly fine not interfering and being the ones that the husbands come home to after a long day of murder. And so Kay is, is I guess, supposed to be different from that, but the way that Keaton portrays her makes her perfectly suited to that female culture in these films. And she can accept what he tells her. And in a way, maybe this is her own initiation into being a mafia wife. You know, this is her accepting the lie. She clearly does accept it. It's immediately refuted when he's made the godfather and Clemenza comes in and kisses his hand. Mm-hmm. But she clearly does accept it. And, and I think his lie is convincing because he... It is, yeah. He first, he gets very animated. Don't ask me about my business. And he's like, okay, you won this one time. <laughs> yeah, so he, yeah. he gets really angry and then relents. And it's in the moment of relenting that he gives her his noble lie. And this is why I just, I'm like, come on, like get him a straw. Like Apollonia was maybe a little bit of that strong Italian woman, but you know, Mm -hmm. oh really? You're going to tell me that this one time you're going to let me ask? Oh, I'm going to be able to ask you this one time? (laughs) You know, I just, I can't imagine any woman, (laughs) any Italian woman not giving him hell over this, you know, instead she's like, oh great, thank you. I'll use my one lifeline. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. On the other hand, Kay might've had the sense not to turn the key in the car, but just kidding. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. Hey. Sometimes there's too much. <laughs> she, she knows the right words. Monday, Tuesday, Thursday. <laughs> anyway. Oh, uh, yeah, that's great. I think the noble lie aspect of that is important to him becoming the godfather because it's the, like I talked about, foundational violence in the civil order and 
we tend to want to live with the illusion that the civil order doesn't depend on foundational violence, that are the states that we live in, for instance, the countries don't have violence at their roots and that that violence isn't in some sense necessary to the establishment of the order. So she wants to live, as we all do, I think she wants to live that kind of lie where Mike can have become the patriarch, but it was done with not not clean hands, but at least he wasn't killing family members, right? He didn't make at least he didn't make his own sister a widow. How could he do that? At least it wasn't that level of ruthlessness. But the underlying truth that we want to deny is that there is that ruthlessness at the bottom of things. What would Vito have done with Carlo? Would he have sent him to a, you know a secondary city like Vegas and just given him? It's a good question. I don't see how you you don't kill someone who's basically essentially gotten your brother or son killed especially because he's not a blood relation also he's a douche (laughs) so it makes a little bit of a less fraught decision (laughs) beating his wife and of all the characters in this he is the true villain he's awful yeah and tessio oh tessio the betrayer uh but he's tessio such a sweet guy oh i know yeah abe vagoda yeah but sometimes you got to kill friends and family. So <laughs> that's you know? the moral of the story. <laughs> you know, we all wish we could sometimes, but I mean, <laughs> for them, <laughs> it's a reality because it's business. It's not personal. <laughs> all right. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you to everyone who listened to this episode. I just wanted to say that if you're listening to this on the feed for the Partially Examined Life, you're not yet subscribed. You should subscribe to us directly by searching for us on the podcast app of your choice. And if you like us, a rating or review would help a lot. You can also find us at subtextpodcast.com, where you can subscribe to our email newsletter. To get ad-free episodes and a variety of bonus content, please subscribe at patreon.com slash subtext. Bonus content will include our after show, which we're calling Postscript, which consists of an extra 15 minutes of discussion following the regular episode. Sometimes we'll continue talking about the topic for that week. Sometimes we'll discuss what else we've been reading, writing, and thinking about. When the time comes, we'll be responding to listener emails. And sometimes we'll talk a little bit about ourselves. Subscribing will also get you the occasional full bonus show and several prequel episodes that I did with various guests. Send your feedback and episode requests to letters at subtextpodcast.com. You'll also find us on Facebook at Subtext Podcast and on Twitter at Enjoy Subtext. And once again, thank you for listening. Thank you.